0: Welcome to the broadcast. It's just a treat. It's fun. It's a delight. Hannah Seymour is my executive producer, and she says, Dad, we have to have our Janet partial fix. And I go, you're right. <laughs> so we uh, we track down Janet. We text her, call her, email her, send people to knock on her front door, say, please come back on the podcast. Janet Parshall is consistently profiled as one of the top 100 communicators in talkers magazine, publication industry. She's an on-air personality, which is really a diminutive term. She is a brilliant-minded, great thinker, has a great sense of humor, which helps me out when I get depressed. (laughs) She was selected by President George Bush to represent the White House at a public delegate at the U.N., on the status of women a few years back. She's worked on family issues, on, I mean, it goes on and on and on. She's a graduate of Carroll College in Wisconsin. She was appointed twice by the Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson to the Wisconsin Women's Council. On and on, I could go on her Vita and CV. She's currently, I would say, probably your main deal is in the market. Is that right? In the Marco Janet partial? Yeah. Is that your main deal?
1: That is my main deal. Job. Yep, it is. My foot's nailed to the ground. Right, you betcha.
0: There you go. It can be heard anywhere you listen, online or on the Media Radio Network, etc. We've been friends for a awfully long time, dating back to our years in the Washington, D.C. area, she and Craig. And so thanks for coming on the broadcast, friend.
1: Oh, I just love spending time with you. You make me think, and you do make me laugh. So thanks for the invite. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, let's jump into it. It's really hard to keep up with denominations. I don't know how. I mean, that's not my world. But being a retired guy now, I read a little more than I used to read. And when you look at the Baptists and the Presbyterians and some of these denominations, the Methodists, that have these extraordinary infightings, I was just wanted to get your response on some things. Like the Baptists redefining pastor and women. Talk to me about your observations, what you're reading, your research, how you respond to this.
1: Well, I get excited. I tell you, these are my favorite issues, as can be. And I'll tell you why, because the writer of Ecclesiastes was right, there's nothing new under the sun. If you devolve all of these issues, really the common thread that works its way through the mainline denominations, whatever term that means—and remember, it's the secular world that came up with that phrase, we in the church didn't come up with that phrase— it really and truly gets down to the primacy of scripture. And I love this debate because this goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years on whether or not the Bible doesn't contain the word of God. It is the word of God. And as such, it applies to all people at all times and in all places. And what we're seeing in these unpackings, and that's what they are, and fill in the blank of whatever denomination you want, the core issue in every one of these is thus saith the Lord. Now, people think at first blush, oh, no, she's being rigid. No, I'm not. I'm being obedient. I didn't write the book. I am called to follow what the book tells me. And so whether it happens to do with the issue of how we define marriage or human sexuality or whether or not should a woman should be a pastor, every single one of those goes back to the center of the wheel. The other things are just spokes. The center of the wheel is the primacy of Scripture and whether or not God said it, therefore it is. And what I find so interesting is that Satan isn't particularly clever. He's just got a few tools in his bag, but he keeps using them again and again and again because apparently they're very effective. So you wade in up to your ankles in the scriptures, yep. and immediately you've got the enemy saying, Did God really say that? And that question is what's in front of us today. Did God really say that? Goes back to the mm. split for the Reformation. It's the same kind of split we're seeing in denominations today about homosexuality and whether or not women should be pastors. I don't care what your name is. The core for all of this is the Word of God. And that is what my mama would call a delicious argument. I don't want to sit that one out because <laughs> is the word that important in our life or is it some just some manual that we pick up when we think we need it? Or is it God's directions to us revealing who he is, who he calls us to be, and how he wants us to behave? So that isn't a sidebar story. It is the big issue. And what we're seeing, I think, are all the various manifestations in the culture today of whether or not the Bible is the word of God or whether or not, you know, like the Constitution of the United States, States. It's elastic. It's outgrown its use. We'll spread it and stretch it, and make it wrap itself around whatever yeah. current cultural trend we're dealing with. So it's a big issue. It's an important issue. But it's the bottom line distilled is: What do you think of the Word of God? Period.
0: I've often said revisionists are the only ones who pretend to know history. <laughs> and when, when you look at revisionism within the these denominations, it's striking to hear some of these assemblies and how they argue the point a good friend of ours making a statement, and I'm not quoting verbatim, but making a statement, you know, I've been wrong all these years. I listen to that and I go, well, now we're into experiential theology, or I guess we might call it progressive Christianity, Mm -hmm. because my experience and what I'm seeing are now outweighing, as you just said, thus said the Lord. Mm -hmm. What happens to people, and it's not just men, what happens to men and women, Janet, when they they finally say, Okay, maybe I was wrong. Maybe it isn't a big deal to, you know, think marriage is for anyone or any definition of marriage yeah. or you don't have to be married. What happens that Christians yes.
1: Yep, absolutely. Start thinking this way. Well, first of all, thank you for the delineation. And let's just make this clarifier right now. The world is doing exactly what the world is supposed to do. Without Jesus, it is sin-sick, turned upside down, right is wrong, wrong is right. Men are doing what's right in their own eyes. So push the world aside. They're on track. They're doing exactly what the Word says they're supposed to do. My concern (laughs) is the the Church and what the Church is doing. And, you know, the idea of maybe I was wrong—listen, I'll tell you one thing I'm trying to learn the older I get is the more I really want to have a teachable spirit— and I want to say when the Lord's teaching me, hey, I was wrong on that, Lord. Thank you for the power and the instructive directive of yes. the Holy Spirit. But that's a whole lot different because really the question is, hey, it was wrong all these years. What you're really saying is God was wrong all these years. Let's unpack that. So in other words, when God says exactly what the org chart should be for the church, that the titular head should be a man reflective of the kingship of Jesus Christ. When there's a directive of the position of elders, the husband of one wife, that's it's pretty hard to put a woman elder in there, and it's then hard this, to get around that it one. Hard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it sure yeah. is. It sure is. <laughs> and then the supportive role of the de- of the deacons. I was wrong about that. So, in other words, either you're right now. And God was wrong, or God was wrong, and you need to go back to the book and study again what it has to say. And I say that, again, I want a teachable spirit, but I'm not instructing God. God is there to instruct me through the power and the authority of his word. So I was wrong all these years. You said something impliedly that I want to pick up on because it was so insightful. What we're doing, this experiential stuff, is driving everything. We've talked about this before, but in 2016, Oxford chose as the word of the year, post-truth which is reflective of whatever's going on in the world, their word of the year. Well, post-truth means exactly this. They've pulled back from the idea that truth is objective and knowable and applies to all people. And they've juxtaposed it and said, now what you feel about this supersedes the reality of objective, knowable truth. So we get these gag-worthy statements of... I found my voice. It's my truth. I have to speak my, me, 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 me. When the reality is there is a truth, one of his multiple names is truth, he still sits on the throne, and it is absolutely noble, universal, and applicable to all people. So we've juxtaposed, and I'm going to go back to Bill Wright. When I was a kid growing up, Campus Crusade, now known as Crew, used to talk about the throne room of your heart, and either Christ sits on that throne or you do, and we're yeah. constantly pushing him off and trying to put ourselves in that position. Position of we are the king. We shall be like gods. Remember Genesis. We're in a Genesis era again. And so when we talk about our truth, what we're saying is, God, I'll get to your truth if it's convenient, if it's comfortable, if it's applicable. But in the meantime, I am the arbiter of truth. Well, we're anything but, by the way. So I think that all of this is an amalgamation of the idea, again, the root question, what about the Word of God? Does it apply to all people in all times and all places? But in a post-truth world, what we're doing is we're allowing experience to define truth. Well, again, I'm going to go back to Bill Bright. Some things are just worth repeating. He used to talk about the engine of the train, the coal car of the train, and the caboose of the train. The engine is fact the coal car is faith, and the caboose is feeling. Fact, faith, feeling, in that order. The facts of Scripture, my faith comes. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And then the caboose is the end, is the experiential, the outcome of what I think, believe, and know, and that dictates my behavior. We've turned this train upside down, and now we got the caboose leading the train, and as a result of that, we have chaos yeah. inside the church.
0: Recently saw the Anglican Church, which has been a, a marvelous study, because you and I have friends or are differentiated between the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion. Yes. And we've had friends that have been conservative and not pugilistic. They've been, let us do our thing. You can do your thing. Our good friend in Northern Virginia there who you know fought litigation for, what, seven years and mm-hmm. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars and lost everything over it. Right. I was struck by his attitude and demeanor going, fine, but we're trying to stay in this Anglican community and communion and not divide the church and so forth. But the archbishop said, you know, our father now is problematic because it's patriarchal. I couldn't believe this. I had to go read like five or six different news outlets to try to see, is that really what he said? And what was the broader context? But this is what he said. Yep. I know the word father is problematic for those who experience earthly fathers, has been destructive and abusive, and for all of us who have labored rather too much from an oppressively patriarchal grip on life. And, I mean, my forehead's already flat, Janet. What do we do with this kind of stuff? Well,
1: let me do a little background on this because I am absolutely fascinated by this story, and it Please. really goes to the idea that ideas have consequences. It's an important thing you learn your first week in philosophy yeah. class. Good ideas have good consequences; bad ideas have bad consequences. So let's go back to the formation of the Church of England. This is where it comes out of, right? They call it Anglican, but in in the UK, it's the Church of England. This was started by a licentious, lustful king who couldn't get what he wanted for the Catholic Church at the time. He's married to a woman who wouldn't give him a son. He was determined that he'd have a male heir. She wouldn't deliver. He torturously pulls out a verse of Leviticus and says, our marriage is nullified. I never should have married you. They had multiple children. They were married 17 years, but we were never really married. Goes to the Pope, says, nullify my marriage. The Pope goes, nope, can't do it. And King Henry VIII goes, I know, I'll start my own church. And this is how Thomas More gets his head taken off his shoulders because Thomas More says, I am the king's good servant, but I am God's first. And he would not give Henry the permission to find... Found his own church. Well, he lops off Thomas More's head. He forms the Church of England, which gives him permission to marry Anne, whose head he eventually cuts off because she likewise doesn't deliver mail. And after that, he has four more wives. And by the time it's all said and done, he has one male heir. He doesn't live very long. I give you Queen Elizabeth, and I could go on for the generations. The bottom line is the Church of England right. was founded out of sin. Okay, that is inarguable. I'm sure that that offends some people, but that was the history. history. Now, let me tell you, fast forward 21st century. So the Church of England has been dabbling with language for quite some time. They've done two things, number one, that were absolutely egregious. They were heretical. First, they said, we will not perform same-sex marriages, but we will bless them. Now, uh, just unpack that for a minute. Put your thinking cap on. So you won't perform them in your church, but you'll bless them. So you won't do it because it's sin and against God's word but we'll turn around and we'll bless it because it's sin. So that was chaos. Then at the same time they did that, they put together a commission to study language in the word. And they were decided that they'd have these great minds that would come together through the synod and they would study the language of scripture. So the first manifestation of that study of language, they go right to Jesus's prayers. He's teaching us how to pray, starting with the words, our father. This goes to exactly what you and I were talking about. The experiential dictates truth. So so if you've had an abusive dad, you shouldn't start the prayer of our father. And I'm telling you, I pulled my hair out when I heard this because I thought, wait a minute. So the one who can heal you, restore you, will never abandon you is the father to the fatherless, can bind our wounds, restore the ears the locusts have eaten. You're not going to say our father to the healer, the restorer, the person who puts us all back together because you had an abusive background. You're sick. Whatever you do, don't go to the doctor.
0: All that being said, let's say we have X percentage of people that had horrible fathers, neglectful, abusive, fill in the blank. There's a great father. Amen. That's what struck me, Janet, was, wait, a lot of people could say, oh, my dad was this or that or whatever, alcoholic, et cetera. But you know, there's a different father. As you just said, he won't abandon. He loves you unconditionally. He's going to take care of you. That's the part to me that was most egregious. Wait a
1: minute. Here's the father we all want. Exactly. It's not from the top down. Our Father who art in heaven, the one who's going to protect us, supply our needs, never ever abandon us. Nothing and no one can ever separate us from the love of Christ. No earthly daddy can fill that, but our heavenly Abba Father yeah. is that. So the Church of England and its arrogance and hubris says, don't say that because you had a broken experience. So don't take them to the one who can put broken people back together. Change the language instead. And what's particularly bothersome to me is that this is mission creep. So they start with the words "our Father," and then we've got yeah. female clerics. I remember when the Church of England starts to ordain women, and uh, the reality is that they're saying we can relate more to God if we eradicate the gender. Okay, well, I don't care how you feel about it. When Jesus says, "I'm going to teach you how to pray," and He starts out by saying, "Our Father." If that's how Jesus is teaching us to pray, who am I in my arrogance and my earthly arrogance to say, I'm going to redirect how you say this, Jesus, because you were wrong. No. Jesus is God incarnate. He's talking to his Father. He is referred to as the Son. Don't mess with the pronouns. God could have called himself anything he wanted to. This goes back to where we started our conversation, Michael, which is where do you stand in the Word of God? Well, the Church of England has abandoned the Word of God a long time ago. So all of this crazy stuff is going going right to the core of the wheel again. You take out the primacy of the word of God. You don't look at it as the book is the word of God. It's pick and choose like you're at a buffet restaurant. And by the time you're through at a buffet restaurant, you got a plate full of carbs. You don't eat your veggies and you're still hungry. So don't play with the word of God.
0: <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You we went to carbs. Now you're offending me. <laughs> That's my love language. <laughs> Well, let's go back to what you said about the Church of England, because I remember, I think it was about the time, well, you're better with dates and time, the Lambda Conference was held in Africa, Mm -hmm. and they were dabbling with this blessing versus, you know, you can't perform the marriage, but you can bless it. And one of the African primates, which is a terrible nomenclature, but one of the African primates came out and said, wait a minute, you taught us... Man and woman. You taught us husband and wife. So the Church of England yes. that evangelized Africa in mm-hmm. no small part, yes, along with khaki and white parliamentary rules, mm-hmm. but they evangelized this country, this dark continent. And I remember saying that grandchildren have slapped their grandmother mm. and said, wait a minute, this is not what you taught us. Right. And you remind me of the date and time, but the Lambda Conference marginally passed because it was in Africa mm-hmm. and there were enough African representatives to say no we are not going to accept this tolerant language now fast forward of course that's we need to apologize to the Jesus seminar people <laughs> (laughs) 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 they were more right than it is today
1: (laughs) my word well and you know what's interesting is if you talk to the Anglican Church in the African continent they're far more conservative than the Anglican Church in the UK and and again the the issue in all of this is the word of God they have you taught me means you taught us from the principles and precepts of God's word you have abandoned the word of God and we're not going to follow with you so I have to tell you the Bible says he who troubleth his own house and It's the wind, and the wind is roaring around the Church of England, so there's a schism. It's also why you're seeing the growth of what they call the free church movement in the UK, because these are churches that absolutely will not abandon the Word of God, and they're growing. So if you go to the Church of England on Sunday morning, I hate to tell you, but it's a particular demographic, mostly 60 and older. It's a handful of people. They go through all the ceremony, the pomp and circumstances, but they are whited sepulchers in every sense of the word. Why? Because they abandon the Word of God
0: you know after uh, retiring Cindy and I have had the opportunity to visit churches which 43 years I've kind of been you know we had to go to church where I was it was sort of you know related to my job <laughs> and my poor wife who's been great she's always been very happy to go where you know where I served but now it's like okay honey let's let's look well, even in Middle Tennessee, Janet, which no surprise to you, finding a church that teaches the scripture is you know, looking for a pearl. So we visited a couple of denominations. I won't elaborate. But the interesting thing about them is the ceremonial pomp and circumstance, she's never been around. Mm. And she's like really attracted to the liturgy and these readings. And there is some beauty in the call and response and reading a passage and singing a little desk camp. There is a beauty to that. Yeah. But there are automatons in that room.
1: <laughs> That's yes,
0: it's just rote, yeah. And of course, growing up Catholic, it's like, wait a minute, I, I know this song and dance, no disrespect to my Catholic friends, but you know, many of us would just acknowledge it's just you know, autopilot for an hour and you mm-hmm. went home. Yeah. My point being, we've always overcompensating, mm-hmm. we rarely land on the foundations. When you look at the denominations, and you've been following this stuff much more precisely than I have. Is it even a accurate question to ask what happened to these denominations that were at what point stalwarts on you know reform churches for example the presbyterian church whatever the anglican community they were pretty good sure they had some excesses but so do evangelicals Mm -hmm. and the main though it was focused on
1: scripture Mm -hmm.
0: but the shift is it just the cultural pressure is it
1: the seminary's
0: failure is it all the above help me
1: I think it's all of the above, but I also think if we're using the Word of God as our roadmap, it's to be expected. You know, you and I have talked about this. I think most people watching, listening to us right now realize that we are in a rapid cultural decay. I remember Judge Robert Bork wrote a wonderful book years and years and years ago called Slouching Toward Gomorrah. If he were alive today, he'd have to say that the title of the book is Racing Toward Gomorrah. I mean, I realize that the older you get, the faster time flies. But in my world, from my perspective, we are decompensating at a breakneck speed. I mean, 10, 15 years we are seeing things we've never seen before. Sending your child to a public school where the school has instructed the teacher to not tell the parent your child is calling himself another name and wearing different clothes when he gets to the school. we call it a penumbral right. It's so self-evident. The Supreme Court says that relationship between parent and child, unless there's known abuse, is never to be disturbed or disrupted. Well, in this Marxist worldview, and that's what it is, we've now abandoned that. We've got this, this arrogance that says that if you mutilate your body and take a bunch of pills, you'll redefine who you are, because after all, we shall be like gods. So if we're watching all of this cultural decay, why would we think that somehow it wouldn't work its way into the church? Ah, there's the word of God again. You go to 2 Thessalonians, you go to Matthew 24, Jesus gives that Olivet Discount, one of his longest presentations, and he talks about the six things we should be particularly looking for as we're looking at our watch, waiting for his return that are going to happen. Four of them affect the church, and one of them is this rising apostasy. Now, Jesus Hmm. was telling his truth, and he said, all of this has to happen before he comes. You and I don't know, nobody knows, only the Father knows, but I'll tell you, if you're paying attention like a good farmer, like scripture tells us to, you're looking at the storm. Clouds and there are storm clouds gathering around. So, if we're seeing all this cultural decay, why would we think that apostasy and heresy wouldn't be on the rise? And when we read in 2nd Thessalonians about the great falling away. Why would we think that isn't happening right now? So yes, there's all kinds of junk happening in the culture, but are we beginning to see, those of us who are listening with the ears in our hearts and watching with discerning eyes, are we beginning to see the great falling away? When I was a kid and I came to faith in Christ, the verse that scared me more than any other verse in scripture was this, even the righteous will be deceived. And I panicked and I used to cry literally before the Lord and say, Jesus, if you're in my heart... I don't know how, because I now have your imputed righteousness, probably didn't use that word at the time, but that idea that I became whole and clean because of him— would I be deceived? That has been for the rest of my life a watchword. Lord, watch me, check me, poke me. If I'm off, if I'm moving away, I don't ever want to be deceived. And I think what we're seeing in these churches is deception. Michael, the other day, when in the middle of this gay pride month, which is now gay pride every single second of the day, we're beyond. I was a kid growing up in Wisconsin. June used to be Dairy Month. Now it's gay pride month. I guess things have changed <laughs> there. But <laughs> I remember reading. Maybe we'll
0: have a gay dairy month. Who knows?
1: <laughs> I think it's called Dairy Queen. <laughs> oh, boom. <laughs> oh, that's bad. But going back on That Queen,
0: was great. No, it's was perfect. I love it.
1: Thank you, sir. I remember reading a man, well-known Christian author, who said, and I quote, the title of his article was, Why Not Hang a Gay Flag? And I thought, why not have a gay flag? Well, you're going to hang the liar's flag and the adulterer's flag and the cheater's <sighs> flag. And I mean, apparently we have forgotten the whole concept of sin. And therein lies the fact that we are, oh, those absolute knee-jerk, right-wing reactionary, homophobic members of the religious right. So I looked this up. I'm a lover of words. Fundamentalist, okay? Because the language is everything here. Fundamentalist is defined by Webster as a person who believes in the strict, literal interpretation of scripture in religion. Now, I find that interesting. Okay, so yes, I am a religious fundamentalist. I have no problems with that whatsoever. And if you look at the word, it means going back to the root. I don't ever want to abandon the root. Yes. I want to stay in the root of the word. If you look at the word evangelical, this is fascinating, of or according to the teachings of the gospel of the Christian religion it gets a little mushy the minute you go from fundamentalist to evangelical. If you go to Google and you decide to search the word evangelical, and by the way, 94% of people who go to Google never go to the second page. Even if there's 10 pages, they don't go past that first page. Every single story on evangelical under news for Google is Politics, 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 politics. So people are shying away from using the word evangelical because now it's synchronistically tied to the fact that it has to be a political position or it's a voting block. So we don't even know what to call ourselves anymore if we don't even know how to identify ourselves as daughters and sons of the most high king, living epistles, ambassadors who should never be ashamed, people who cannot stop talking about that which they've seen and heard no wonder we're getting mushy in the churches. So I think, I don't know when he's coming, but I'll tell you what, I got my bags packed. I'm ready any single day now. But if we're watching this falling away, I'm thinking, oh man, this is that my mom used to call it setting the stage. She said, Jesus is going to set the stage before he comes. And I feel like all of the props and this furniture are being set on the stage and things are happening now. I don't know when, could be tomorrow, could be a hundred years from now, but I'm watching thinking, if you look at prophecy, all the major prophecies have been fulfilled. We're watching this idea of the decay in the culture, apostasy in the church, the uptick of heresy. I don't know. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I i hope I miss dinner tonight. I don't know what'll happen, but I'm ready. You, you,
0: <laughs> no, I'm ready too. I have a friend of mine that's signed his letters Maranatha as long as I've known him. I, got, I think we need to bring this back. Yes. <laughs> say Maranatha, please, Jesus, Maranatha. But, you know, and we've talked about this before. In the 1940s, if you and I were living in 1940, 4142. And we saw, and we were whatever term we want to use, evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing Christians. And we took the scripture as we do, literal, grammatical, and you know, historical, correct. It's God's truth. If we had that position, Hitler had to be the Antichrist. Oh, absolutely. The, the aligning of the nations had to be. Yeah. I mean, you and I would have probably been sitting in churches in those days, even more of them that said, These are the end times, have your bags packed. Now, my question to you is, as you're a better student of history than me, but as I look at the tectonic pressures in culture and how it affects the church, what's different now? Because you and I feel this imminency, but what's different now, do you think? If you were in the '40s versus now we are 2023, it happens fast. Yeah. But that pressure, Janet, it's been going on a long time mm-hmm. before it starts erupting in these hogbacks where we're going. Oh, there's a yeah. problem.
1: Yeah. It, well, I'll tell you one of the things immediately that's different is 1948 because in the early 1940s, and I, you're absolutely right, and my little two cents on the Antichrist is I think Satan has had one waiting in the wings for all of history. It Probably Herod at one point, it could have been Pharaoh at another point, Hitler at another point. So I think the these are types of the Antichrist, not the Antichrist, but he's always got somebody waiting in the yeah. wings so he can make his appearance. But 1948, when the nation of Israel was established, that was a profound, major fulfillment of scripture. And we had not had that before 1948. But your Point, which is the, I'll use a music term, the accelerando that's going on, the speeding up of what's things happening. In the 1950s and 60s, even when the sexual rebellion was taking place and they were letting it all hang out, and if it felt good, do it, they were burning their underwear on the streets of New York, there still was not the level of licentiousness and deviousness now. I mean, let's go to these moms sure. and dads that the FBI are calling domestic terrorists. President Obama, I'm sorry, just weighed into the American Library Association recently and said him a mal- letter and said how horrible it is that we're, quote, banning books in the library. This puts me on the horns of a dilemma as a Christian broadcaster, because I'm not just a little Bible church kid, okay? Some of this stuff is like, I still have no point of reference for this. I'm guessing this is the kind of stuff you'd seen in a porn store. and every hand, have been one, don't plan on going to one, but it's all cartoons. It's all illustrations of Boys having sex together and men pleasuring young boys and different sexual positions for elementary and middle school students. And the former president of the United States says it's wrong to ban this book. No, it's wrong to tear down the veil of common sense and modesty that God instilled in our children and instead recruit them and groom them for sexual deviancy. We wouldn't have seen that in the 60s, even in the middle of the sexual revolution and Woodstock and the hippie Mm -hmm. movement. That was a bridge too far. Now, there's no holds bar, And now we're not just seeing the transgender, but now we're moving toward minor attracted adults. We used to call it pedophilia. It was a crime. There was a group that introduced a resolution to the United Nations within the last two months that said— We don't think that you should call this a crime because if asked, we think children could give consent to sex. So we feel that this should be a universal right of the child globally. So we've got states that are already moving to reduce this from felonies to misdemeanors if an adult has sex with a child. And we're taking away the stigma of the word pedophile and instead we're calling it a minor attracted person. Even in the 60s, that would have been unconscionable. So when we're seeing this, I was going to say uptick, but it's the wrong direction, this downgrading, this devolution of just cultural common decency, and it's happening at such a breakneck speed, not 10 years ago, but month by month by month, it gets more deviant, more perverse than we've ever seen it before. The corruption in government, the falling away of not lovers of the truth anymore, all of those things we see in scripture. I don't know, there's a different kind of a, prescient nature to this than there was in the past. And that's why you use the perfect word. We don't know if his return is immediate, but it certainly is eminent. And if you are paying attention, you have to say, something's happening here. Aslan is on the move, something is going on.
0: I hope so. Because I often said, oh gosh, the last four or five years in the pulpit, I've said, look, we're not even 250 years old. And what's transpired in this great country has been probably on par, if not more, significant than the Roman dynasty. Oh, now, yes. we can't talk about Eastern and you know China, and we have to look at that differently. But when you think of a Western culture mindset yeah. and the idea of how this country began, whether it was deistic or true, I don't even care. My point is, we've had, what was the Lincoln's thing? In his, one of his Thanksgiving proclamations, he talks about this yeah. incredible line of success, but we've not been humble or repentant. Exactly. And it seems like now you can't put the lid, forget putting the worms back in the can, you can't put the lid on it. And I don't want to be fatalistic, Janet, but even if you had another great, you know, let's not even call him a Christian, but a principled leader who became the president man or woman mm-hmm. and said no we're not going to have this egregious redefinition of sexuality you can't all of a sudden say because we have chemicals and surgical procedures that didn't exist 25 years ago mm-hmm. that a person can change their gender or you know personage at age 5 or 6 or whatever and we can medicate them i mean this is right you said the word unconscionable but at, at the end of the day, you, you almost step back and go, I don't want to scare people, but is it over? When I watch what happened to the church, that's one of the questions I want to get to about nomenclature. It almost seems like Erwin Luther and I recently had an interview, and he said, you need to prepare your grandchildren for a different future.
1: Hmm.
0: It's not abdicating, but it's like, we can't turn this dial back. Where are you on this?
1: Yeah. Well, you just said so many important things. Let me go back to the 250 years. We're at 247 for America. The second to the last book that Cal Thomas just wrote is absolutely brilliant. What he did is he looked at seven major empires and their ruination, and he said the average length of an empire, Babylonian, Roman, United States, is 250 years, interestingly. And when you look at why they fell, there's a commonality in every one of the deconstruction of the empires licentiousness, lawlessness, everything that we're seeing in America today, all of the hallmarks that felled the Babylonian Empire, that felled the Roman Empire, that possibly could fall the United States. And look, eschatology, we're not named in the book of Revelation. Why do we become amalgamated with North America and Mexico? I don't know, but we're not there for sure. So something (laughs) happens. But the reality is we could be totally destroyed and we have no national sovereignty anymore. And quite frankly, we deserve it because we have abandoned God, we've turned our back on him, and yeah. we've we've put in every other substitute for him and his sovereignty. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We're not blessed because he's not our Lord anymore in this country. So the idea about putting the genie back in the bottle, as you talked about before, that's a really interesting point because if things move forward and they seem to do that, if they're moving toward A proclaimed end, and they are. That's what eschatology is all about. Every word that's in that book is going to be fulfilled. It is inerrant, inspired, transcendent, immutable, and it's absolutely true. It ain't
0: going to get any better. No,
1: that's. but but on that note, and that's such a good point because I talk to people every day who think, oh, oh, well, that's it. I'm pulling the covers over my head. Well, then you got to stop and go, wait a minute, go back to the playbook, okay? First of all, do some comparisons. I was talking about empires. I'll tell you what, as awful as it is in the United States right now, I'll take this over first century Rome in a heartbeat. I know that I've got nobody who's going to take me, throw me in the dungeon, feed me to wild animals, pour pitch over my body, use me as a nightstand as I drive naked through Rome in my chariot. They're not beheading yet. yet. That's exactly (laughs) (laughs) right. But on that note, (laughs) when you fast forward and you look at what happened in Nazi Germany, they didn't go from nothing to the camps. There was this systematic marginalization. Well, we're going to give them identity. Well, we're going to write Juden on their shops. Well, we're going to put them in ghettos. And systematically, they became a hated group because the government fed the narrative. So am I afraid? No, because I'm going to tell you why. I'm not here by accident. I am a woman by God's sovereignty. I am a child of the king by God's sovereignty. I am in the 21st century by God's sovereignty. So, the question I get to say right back to the Lord is, Thank you, God. How then shall I live? Thank you, Francis Shaver. Thank you, the update by Chuck Colson. And the bottom line is, if he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and of a sound mind, and he's done all of that, he's not calling us to be fearful as the country is decaying. He's calling us to be faithful. And what does that mean? It means means the wheat and the shaft, the sheep and the goats. This is the distinctive we are now seeing. Are you going to be bold enough to say, no, I'm not going to call a cat a dog, a dog, a cat. You are a man. You shouldn't be in the ladies' locker room. Cost me my job. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. I keep saying over the air, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people are kind of tired of it, but the day of the wimpy Christian is gone. We are now people who mandatorily have yeah. to get off a diet of milk, we have to get to meat, we have to get some spiritual heft on our bones, we have to suit up, and we have to get out there, because here is the newsflash. I am not the tiniest bit afraid, okay? What's the worst that can happen? To live is Christ, to die is gain, real life begins, newsflash, this is not as good as it gets. But the time has come now where we're going to be called to be different and to be called out as his. And it just might, for the first time in the history of this nation, it just might cause Us something, so I think it's imperative for us to be optimistic realists, but to say, "Look, I looked at my watch, and I got news for you: it's going to get rough. What are you going to do about it?"
0: Yeah, I've been using a term, sanctified pugilist. (laughs) 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 I love it. (laughs) I want want to be a sanctified pugilist. There you go. Now, now, something you said took me to a question I, I wanted to ask you, and moving from so many things we've we've talked about here, but. What's happened to language? You talked about fundamental and evangelical and denominational. I was intrigued recently. I did some homework on this, actually. Just my rabbit holes are weird. Churches and ministries that are adopting one name, and I'm just going to call them out, Mosaic, Ethos, evelation, Journey, Bridge, Generation, Redeemer, conferences called Orange, Engage, Exponential, Arc, Unleash. I mean, I've got more, but it's like, what's happened? to? Is this just marketing or... To me, it seems like there's something more. It's reductionistic theology. What happened to, we are a church that makes disciples. Yeah. No, we're a church that transforms the heart. Here's the Enneagram for six weeks. I mean, I I, I don't want to be pejorative, but it, it's like, what happened? Yeah. And language is revealing. Well, that, sir, and is I, why... I watch these younger pastors... Yeah obliquely and almost obligatorily say, no, we can't be evangelicals. (laughs) We can't be discipleship. We have to be, what's the phrase we use now, transformational leadership. Well, that's fine to talk about, but we're supposed to make disciples of all ethnos. We're supposed to share Christ, be evangelical, share the good news. So am I just like an old dinosaur
1: because I like the Bible language? No. It's one of the reasons why I love you so much as a friend. Go for it. (laughs) Because you are so discerning, okay? Let me affirm everything that you're picking up. And by the way, we are to be discerning saints, which means you really have to redeem the times. And you have to be cognizant of what's going on. Everything you just said, I'm seeing replicated in Christian publishing. I cannot make this up. Literally, I've been getting books lately on how to rebrand your church. It's like, what? I'm not selling a hamburger, okay? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then I go back to what Jesus did. The answer here is authentic Christianity. Just give them the good news. It still sets the captive free. We don't preach hell and sin and salvation and redemption anymore. We're trying to be friendly. We're trying to be seeker friendly. And you know what the problem is? This goes back to 1 Kings. How long will you limp between two opinions, says Elijah to the pagans? We are limping back and forth between being loved by the world and loving Christ. And one of these days we're going to have to make a choice because I'm not interested in being loved by the world. I want to love people. People, but I want to love them to the foot of the cross. I remember so much a friend in Israel saying, you know, the Christians in America will send money to plant trees. They won't send money to print Bibles. And you know what the problem is? You're loving yeah. us to death. And I've never forgotten that. So, in other words, we've forgotten what the meaning of love is. We've got this super sappy idea of what love means. Love means I care for you so much, I don't want you to go to hell. I love you so much, I want to tell you about the cure for death. I love you so much, I want to tell yep. you how sin sick souls are made whole again. But the problem is there's a risk there. Now you're starting to do some risk analysis. Well, I might not be invited to the best parties. I might lose my job. I might not be considered kind and loving and nurturing and all of these other words that are like a pair of fuzzy slippers. But the reality is when it's all said and done, to quote the old patriarchs, the world gets divided into two camps, those who said yes and those who said no. And there's no second chance. And so I really think, and again, it isn't a matter about being panicky. It's about understanding the urgency of the gospel message, where in a world of blurred mores and confused ethics, the clarity of the cross is more important now, and quite frankly, in some respects, is easier now than ever before for us to proclaim it, because the distinction between darkness and light has never been more profound. So I choke a little bit when I hear all of this trendy stuff, because I'm thinking, ultimately, when it's all done. done, I got a newsflash for you. It's called the offense of the cross. You can church it up all you want to, but the reality is at some point it's a dividing rod. It's why it's called a sword and people are going to be divided into two camps. I want you on my side of the team and I'm going to do everything and anything I can to get you to come to the cross. I know it's the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, but if I can live authentic Christianity by declaring truth in love, always through a grace narrative, that's enough. I don't have to have multiple screens and a rock band in a contemporary version versus an old-fashioned version, just give them the gospel. It still sets the captive free. We're so interested in the way we market the message, we fail to remember that Jesus is the message. To quote our dear friend Anne Graham Lott's, just give them Jesus.
0: We've become friends with Elisa Childers. I know you know her very well and her work in progressive Christianity, quite a journey from Mm -hmm. music to being a pretty formidable apologist. Mm -hmm. She does some good thinking, but we were talking about just this whole fear of saying what you just said. And one of the things I tried to say in my own way was, you know, say the truth, be kind and smile because so much of our, and I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about within the church. The pandemic to me was the most illustrative time in my 40 years of ministry because the fear that ran through people on the pandemic and the mask mandates in Tennessee was a little waffly that you really didn't have, they wanted you to, but they didn't like some states, like well, Illinois, for example, if I understand you had to wear a mask. In Tennessee, we probably lost, I would say, 20% of our church And picked up another 40% during the pandemic. Mm. Because we said, look, we don't know what we don't know. We're going to clean the room. You can wear a mask. You don't have to wear a mask. You're an adult. Make a decision. And it was so interesting because that was novel. And sure, I got physicians in my face that said, you're going to be responsible for people's death. And you and I both talked about the Luther quote during the plague. If it's God's time. But I'm not going to stop. Right. I'm not going li- to... And we, for two years, the church hid, and we could talk about the repercussions of this forever. But again, my rambling point here is, I think we've lost courage. Mm. I think we've lost the tenacity to say, as you started, thus says the Lord, right. Janet. This yes. is right. the word of God. Do you trust that or all these experts who you know are going to weigh in and say, mm. no, the church needs to be this and that, and but the reductionism... Oh, okay. Again, I want to just touch on this one more time, real quickly. Why do you think the church has become so reductionistic?
1: Hmm. Well, let me pick up on something you said. Again, so insightful. I adore okay. the work of Dr. George Barna. He's working at Arizona Christian University at the Cultural Research Center, and his name is synonymous yeah. with superb methodology. So his his method of getting information is not in dispute at all. So he, he's been doing these worldview studies, and I'm fascinated because it's about the church. I want to know, I'm preparing yes. for a transcultural missionary experience, right? I want to know about the group I'm ministering to, so I want to know where the church is at. He talked about the downtick in a Attendance as a result of COVID in churches all across America. But there was a residual of that that is particularly problematic that churches need to understand, believers need to understand, pastors need to understand, because the downtick in attendance had a profound impact on our beliefs. So Barnett broke the church in America into four groups one was all adults. One was Catholics, one was Evangelicals, one was Mainline. I put away three categories. I just wanted to go to what the Evangelical community had to say. So he asked this question. The best indicator of a successful life is consistent obedience to God, 44% of evangelicals believe that. Now do the math. That's four out of 10 evangelicals believe that the best indicator of a successful life is consistent obedience to God. We're called to obedience in scripture. It gets worse. People are born into sin and can only be saved from its consequences by Jesus Christ. 55% believe that. That's half of the people who identify as evangelicals don't believe that. This one, human life is sacred, 41% believe that. That's four out of 10 say yes, the other six say uh uh-uh, I don't think so. Evangelicals are saying this. The Bible is the true word of God that has no errors, 70%. That still means three out of 10 evangelicals think the Bible is full of mistakes. And one more, after death you will go to heaven only because you confessed your sins and accept Jesus as your Savior 66 percent, four out of 10 evangelicals don't believe that. We talked about language. What is an evangelical? If you don't believe that if you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is more than a question about masks and social distancing. This tells you, again, the idea that if you're not in the word of God, you are set adrift on a sea of confusion and you will be a part of the great falling away. You need to be anchored, and the anchor is the Word of God. And now we've got objective metrics, Michael, that says that evangelicals aren't even believing in the cornerstone orthodoxy of Christianity. And then we wonder why our churches are falling apart. Ideas have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences.
0: And from my vantage point, I blame that on the pastors, because Mm -hmm. the the seminaries and the pastors, and I have always been very defensive of pastors having to do everything. You know, you yeah. if the pastors would do this, if the pastors I mean, because I were one, but my point is they don't stand up there and say, thus says the Lord. They capitulate. Yes. I mean, I, I have very close friendships with pastors that have acquiesced. I don't want to use the word evangelical anymore. They've reductionistically gone away from teaching exposition. They had these lightweight, almost feel-good kind of I don't even know what they're doing anymore. I listen to some of my peers and friends that go, what are you doing to these people? You got 30 to 40 minutes tops once a week.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What are you giving them? Yeah. One of my friends on his sermon notes at the header had printed on all of his notes, sir, we would see Jesus. Mm. Howard Hendricks said one time he was in a church on this podium and it said, What are you doing to these poor people? <laughs> that was more my model. What are you doing to these poor people? But you know, seminaries are failing, pastors are failing, and I scratch my head and I've jousted these dragons unsuccessfully, going, Why? What are you really afraid of? What's gonna happen? You're gonna lose your five one C three? It's never happened. But the striking part of it is the lack of courage is just, and the other thing, let me just say this, we've gone a whoring after success. Mm -hmm. We look at the bigger, better, newer, and we go, oh, we got to do that conference. We got to do it the way so-and-so does it because they got a bigger, better, they got multiple campuses, they got TV, they got live stream, they got whatever, as opposed to saying, here's the congregation God has you serving whether it's in Iowa or in middle Tennessee or in northern Virginia, how are you, before God, going to stand up and say, I tried to shepherd these people? And I don't want to just beat them up. I want to encourage them to say, have some courage and stand your ground. Yeah, exactly. I'm prattling. I'm sorry. No,
1: No, you're not. You know what you're doing. You're speaking an unpopular but absolutely prescient truth. And courage is contagious. And if you see courage from the pulpit, that has a way of transmitting to the people who are sitting in the pews, which has a way of transmitting as they walk out the door. I was one of those kids who left a Bible church. When I walked out, the sign over the door said, you are now entering your mission field. So the whole point of the way in which we were taught from the pulpit was preparing you as a missionary to go out into a foreign, evil, dark world that is desperately in need of Jesus. And you were so in love with Jesus that you likewise, fell in love with people enough to tell them the truth that set them free. It's probably a case-by-case basis, but if I were a doctor and I were to say, here's an epidemic of timidity from the pulpit, there are a lot of things. One of them is fear of finances. The second is we've moved that rather than this be a calling, it's a job. And if it's a job, It stinks as a job. The hours are long. You don't get paid enough. The benefits are not that great. And so if you do this as a, I did my little personality test and I found out I'm supposed to be a pastor, no. But if you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit calling you into full-time service for Him, that's a whole different approach. And so I remember Focus on the Family years ago, saying the average life of a pastor at that time was 10 to 12 years. Now we're lucky to even see that. So when I talk to someone who's a saint who's been in ministry for 30 or 40 years, I am humbled by... being in their presence because they have stayed the course. And God alone knows the times they've wet their pillow at night with tears because it has been a thankless, miserable job where they've been asked to wear 15 different hats and, oh, by the way, keep your marriage together and make sure your house is perfect at all times and your kids don't have any problems. I mean, it's we ask far too much of the pastors. So part of the fault falls in the congregation. What have we done to lift them up. If Jethro said to Moses, come on, you need some help here, why have we not had that same approach in helping our pastors? Instead, we go, you know, Mm -hmm. I really didn't like the way he broke that verse down, or I really don't like that point that he said, or he got too political on that. And we sit there as Sanballat and Tobias looking at Nehemiah going, hey, you missed a spot, you know? And that's the way we look at the pastor as well. And I think it's mostly part, we factor into that as well as the sheep, not just the shepherd.
0: I remember so many times at a manual saying things, I went, you idiot, why did you let those words go out of your mouth and you know, and then paying for it later? But extraordinarily, the mature saints get that. Yeah. They go, you know, my pastor's human. He says things, you know, my Sunday school teacher says something, eh. hey, but in the main, they're growing, they're following Christ. Okay, what do you do with the vitriol and the division? I'm not talking about the country. Mm. I was talking to a friend of ours who's been in politics all their life. They said, well, you have to get out of D.C. and you don't see it. And I went, I disagree because I'm in middle Tennessee. This is not, you know, this isn't northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. The vitriol and division among Christians, whether it was the pandemic, the last election, this language we've been talking about. I mean, I've lost friends over the elections. I've lost friends over woke CRT, BLM, and they won't speak to me. And frankly, Jenna, I don't really want to waste time with them. What's your take on this? And is there a way back, or is this just our new reality?
1: Well, the reality is, I think this is, again, Second Thessalonians. I think this kind of You know, loss of love is also one of the things scripture tells us is going to be happening in the latter days. So A, I'm not surprised by it. B, if we're called to be repairers of the breach, and we are in the book of Isaiah, if as much as is possible with you, be at peace with all men. I mean, my dad was a football coach. There was a playbook. He had to go back to what the playbook said. These are the rules of deportment. I'm not to argue. That's what the coach says in the playbook. These are the rules in which I'm supposed to engage. But there are going to be some people who are stiff-necked, to use scriptural phrases. There are going to be some people who are hard-hearted, and there are going to be some people, again, who are waffling, limping between two opinions, and their politics has now superseded their relationship with Jesus Christ. So I think this is where the maturity of the saint comes in, and that is a wonderful way to engage somebody like that, where the vitriol is there, is to answer a question with a question. It works beautifully in the law. It works beautifully in human dynamics, where somebody goes, you know, I really hate people who voted for fill in the candidate. And rather than become defensive of your position, because you probably voted for that candidate, you say, well... What makes you say that? And you begin to dialogue and asking the questions dialed down the animus. And what happens is as you peel back the layers of this onion, at the core of this, you're probably going to find somebody who's waffling, might be having a dark night of the soul, is asking questions about their faith, is wondering if they're in the process of deconstructing because they don't know what they believe anymore. Thank you, Dr. Paul Little, and why they believe it. And so I think the outside anger very often is revelatory, my experience anyway, of some fear and brokenness on the inside. So put on the whole armor of God. My mama used to say, you go through life with tough skin and a tender heart. And in the church in particular, I think what we do is we say, please, God, give me the ears of my heart to really hear the pain behind what they're saying and not to overcome evil with evil and to remind me, Father, that a soft answer turns away wrath. And if we do that, yeah, they're going to be, obviously, there were times Jesus did this where he shook the sand off his sandals and he went, no, I'm out of here. I mean, these people aren't going to hear my message. This is pearls before swine. I'm going to move on. And so we don't have an arrogant attitude, but in your mind, you go, okay, this person's not in a place right now where they can receive mature Christian counseling to try to repair this bridge, to try to help them see things a different way. So, Lord, if it's your will, give me another opportunity in the future, but time to move on. Part of the discernment of the saint, I think, is to know when to stay and to know when to move on. And that's tough, because we get this Mm. kind of simplified Christianity that says, well, if we're going to be like Jesus, we just love at all times. Yeah, well, he also flipped tables, by the way. He also called the religious community a bunch of hypocrites. So there were times when Jesus went, no, it's not just children on my knee. I am God incarnate, and you're wrong. And sometimes we have to have that kind of an attitude as well.
0: Well, and love is two sides of a coin. The wrath is on the other side. last thing, and there's so many I want to ask you about, but you and I are both grandparents. There was a time when we looked at our children and thought public school and be a witness at school and prepare them to go out into that mission field. But the indoctrination level, even in conservative areas, mm-hmm. is gotten. I was talking to someone about the federal laws about the pronouns and how they're supposed to teach, and they go, "Well, you don't have to do that in local level." Well, the law says you do. Mm-hmm. So, am I overreacting? on this public school thing and say, oh, you can find a good public school. But my experience, the private schools are just as bad. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, they're worse because there's money and insular ideology mm-hmm. that if I have my son or daughter in this private great school, they're not going to be exposed to that. Yeah. And so I've got my own opinions, but I'm, I'm just curious where you are on this whole, how do you, I mean, these are your grandkids now, mm-hmm. and you're going to let them go or encourage them to go or pay their way? Yeah. To go to a school?
1: Yeah. Boy, my position's changed on this. I mean, first of all, I want to say to our friends who are teachers in public schools, God bless you. That is a mission field. It has to be unbelievably difficult when the union top down says you have to do this, and it's antithetical to everything you believe to be true. It has to be unbelievably difficult. That's a kind of aggressive mission field that most of us won't experience. So my heart goes out to you, and thank you for the gift of teaching, because you do shape hearts and minds, and we appreciate so much of what you're doing. Big picture. On pain of death, I would not put a child in a public school right now under any circumstances, because you use the appropriate word, they move from education to indoctrination. It is propaganda. This whole idea, I remember years ago being in a meeting, I snuck into a meeting, there were a bunch of radical teachers, and I went in undercover like a Caleb, and I wanted to hear what they were saying. And at that time, the head of the State Department of Education said, these children in this state belong to us. They are our children. And I thought, no, they're not. You didn't pay any medical bills, and you certainly didn't labor and deliver one of these children. They're absolutely not not yours. And that was years ago. That whole philosophy that the children belong to the state is as Marxist an ideology it possibly gets. The head of the American Library Association is a Marxist lesbian. She doesn't make any Bones about the fact that that is her particular worldview. If she's putting her worldview in the books in the library, if the teachers are being told by the union top down, you don't tell mom if Tom comes to school and wants to be Sue and oh, by the way, we got a closet full of dresses he can put on when he gets here. If you are indoctrinating about critical theory, and by the way, I never use the word race, that's just an iteration. Critical theory goes back to a whole Marxist ideology. It's been critical class theory, critical yes. queer theory, critical legal theory. Race is just one iteration of that, and because race is such a sticky wicket in the United States. I want people to see the bigger picture, which is this is critical theory, which means you create a group where there is supposed to be forevermore division. So you have the oppressor and you have the oppressed and never the twain shall meet. It is so antithetical to the word of God. And yet we've got critical theory being taught on Christian college campuses because oh, they yeah. don't know what the tenants are of this. So to your bigger question about education, the Bible tells us to look well to the ways of your household. I would never presume to tell a mom or dad what to do, but I can't tell you how many times over coffee in the morning, Craig and I have said, thank you, Jesus, our children are grown and they're not in school anymore. Please God, get our grandbabies out as quickly as possible because they've got, thank goodness, parents who fight back. So they're watching and monitoring all the time. They're being Nehemiah parents and they need to be watching them on the wall for their kids. But I think it has so devolved so rapidly. There may be pockets here and there, but as long as you have the National School Board Association, the FBI tracking you, Marxist organizations doing it, I have to tell you that at this point in time, There's a point where you have to say it's unredeemable at this point, and I got to go. And I know that not everybody's called homeschool, but here's the truth. You all became homeschooling parents during COVID, and you lived, didn't you? It was tough. I mean, Johnny was on his laptop on the dining room table, but that was homeschooling, and you lived. So if you had to do it again, you could do it again. But this is where I I go back to Nehemiah all the time. There he is repairing the wall. Israel's been under attack. The walls come down around Jerusalem, and he says they're supposed to be repairing the wall, but he literally did it. With the trowel in one hand and the trumpet in the other. And he said, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, fight for your families. Listen, friends, that trumpet's not playing, it's blaring. And if you're not fighting for your family right now, your child, Colossians, is going to be taken captive through vain and hollow philosophies predicated on this world rather than on the word of God. Number one priority. First and foremost, accept Christ as your savior. Absolutely make your marriage Christ centered and then raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because if not, they become the prisoners of war in a demonic worldview that's taking place right now. My two cents.
0: Well, and not to subset a great conclusion for us, but you you mentioned homeschooling, but tutorials are another phenomenon that are incredible because we've seen these where a lot of parents feel unable to do homeschool. Tutorials are amazing, and you Mm -hmm. can find some that are classical, that are very clear in their Christian, some that are even designed for kids with learning disabilities, and they're a fraction of the cost of the so-called private Christian schools, which I have, as you've said so well, you know, I applaud these teachers who are in the battle, but that's my grandchildren. You know, those are my grandkids. Those are my kids. And I'm like, I appreciate your fight, but your fight may not be my fight right now. That's right. Anyway, that's right. We could go on for hours and hours. Janet partial. We have all her information in the show notes. As always, you need to find out more about her. You can follow her. You can read lots of things she's written. You can listen to her broadcast every single day in the market with Janet partial. Thanks friend. Love you. Appreciate you and Craig so much. And Look forward to the next time we get our Janet partial fix.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Always a delight, brother, and right back at you. Thanks so much for a great conversation. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.